This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Thanks, Dewey. We're talking today with the Reverend Dr. David Vendrunen, Robert B. Strimple Professor of Systematic Theology and Christian Ethics at Westminster Seminary, California. We're talking about his latest book, Living in God's Two Kingdoms, A Biblical Vision for Christianity and Culture. And the title is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, David, and welcome to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. Good to be here. You've written a new book on the question of the two kingdoms, and the title is... Living in God's Two Kingdoms, A Biblical Vision for Christianity and Culture. Living in God's Two Kingdoms. That raises the question right away in the listener's mind, wait a minute, God is sovereign, His sovereignty is His kingdom, there's only one God, therefore there can only be one kingdom. So what do you mean, two kingdoms? Right. Well, what I mean by that is that though God rules all things uh, through His Son, that there are two distinct ways that He carries out His rule in this world. God is the creator and preserver of all things. He has made all things through His Son. Uh, we know of that through the accounts at the beginning of Genesis. Uh, we know that even after the fall into sin, God preserved the world For example, the account of the covenant with Noah uh, in Genesis 9 describes how God continues to preserve this world and its many activities, how he has uh, instituted family and state and various other cultural institutions. But God also demonstrates his kingship and his reign redemptively through saving a people for himself through entering into covenants with Abraham, uh, with Israel, with, uh, with us as the New Testament church. And God has established his church uh, as a sign, as the presence of his eternal redemptive kingdom uh, here on earth. And so God continues to rule all things. He continues to preserve this world for all people uh, through family and state and such institutions. But he has also raised up his church, which is a special, distinct, unique community in which God uh, displays his redemptive power and gathers the people to himself for eternal life. And so one of the big arguments and presumptions of this book is that we as Christians belong to both of God's kingdoms. We are under God's rule in both senses. We continue to enjoy the many benefits of this world uh, as we share with unbelievers in many kinds of cultural activities— Uh, That is under God's lordship, and we submit to him in those things. But we also recognize the very distinctive nature of the Church, and we give thanks for our citizenship in the Church, and we find in there God's grace unto everlasting life. When you talk about two kingdoms, people have suggested to me, won't that create a kind of schizophrenia in the mind of the Christian? You've got a spiritual aspect to you and a sort of this-worldly aspect, and you have two sets of rules that you live under at the same time, and you end up sort of split down the middle. How do you address that concern? I think that's a valid question. I think it's certainly the case that we need to avoid uh, sort of unduly dichotomizing things. We don't want to speak as if sort of the church is about my soul and, you know, the family or state or whatever is about my body. 
that on Sundays I'm a member of this kingdom and Monday through Saturdays I'm a member of this other kingdom. It, it doesn't divide up quite that neatly. And I think we potentially do run into problems if we would articulate it in that way. We are always under the one Lord, and we know that even despite the various ways in which he works in this world, it, uh, all of his work is part of his one grand plan for history, that we remain citizens of both kingdoms, that even when I'm doing very mundane things in this world, I am doing them by faith. Uh, I'm doing them for God's glory. I'm doing them to show love for my neighbor. And so there is a higher unity that we see even in the midst of this. But at the same time, we need to make distinctions where the Scriptures make distinctions. And it doesn't take a whole lot of reading in the Scriptures to see that, say, the civil government plays a very different kind of role in our lives uh, than the Church does. It has very different responsibilities. We could say the same thing about the family, say the same things about our economic uh, institutions, the places where we work. And even though there are certain dangers or temptations of unduly dichotomizing our lives in these different areas, we do have to wrestle with the way that the Scriptures make these distinctions among different institutions. And though we remain unified Christians in all of our lives, we understand that we have some different roles, and sometimes we play by some different rules when we are working and playing and worshiping in these different, uh, different aspects of life. It's been common, particularly among Reformed Christians, for most of the last hundred or let's say 150 years to describe everything that Christians do as kingdom activity, or many things, so that uh, the family is kingdom activity, school is kingdom activity, kingdom work. When I go to work, that's kingdom work. And the benefit of talking about every activity of my life, or most all of them, as kingdom work or kingdom activities is that it seems to provide this unity and a motive for godly living. If you want to distinguish between the work we do as belonging to one kingdom and the other work we do belonging to another kingdom, is there a danger of removing a desire to glorify God and removing a motive for Christian living by distinguishing this way? That's a good question. I think I'd want to step back for a moment and to say that this kind of emphasis, which, which you rightly identify in the last century or so of Reformed Christianity, this idea of all work being kingdom work, it, it arises from some very good motives, I would say. Certainly a response to the modern secularizing of society in which there's a big emphasis upon privatizing religion, privatizing the church, making the civil, social sphere of life this sort of neutral place where we can all meet together without God. And I think it's very important to say that that's not right, that that's not an acceptable way for, for Christians to, to look at things. There's also, I, I think, the way that Reformed Christianity has developed its views on kingdom work over the past century or so uh, has also been a, a response to something that we used to find and we still find in a lot of corners of sort of broad American evangelicalism, which is that the only real work, the only real service that we do as Christians is in the church, uh, is in missionary evangelistic kind of work. And that, of course, most Christians still have to, you know, get jobs, and you have to do it because God says we should do it, and we need to make some money so that we can support missions, and it's good not to be lazy. But there's no real positive conception of why do we go to work in the morning? Why do we participate in 
politics or science or music or whatever it is. And so I think it's important also that we reject that sort of view that basically looks at our work and other cultural activities as sort of just this kind of necessary evil. So I think the whole idea of kingdom work that responds to those kinds of problematic conceptions. And I would sympathize with that response. And I appreciate the way that it tries to to help us to understand that all work, all activities that are lawful are honorable and God-glorifying and expressions of our faith in Christ. However, I would argue, and and this is one of the arguments of of my book, is that taking this sort of kingdom work vision, uh, this idea that all of our cultural activities are in some way redemptively transforming various institutions and activities of life, that is not the only way to affirm the honorableness of all vocations, to affirm that science and politics and music and these sorts of things are good things for Christians to be involved in and are God-glorifying. But there are some important distinctions that Scripture makes. Scripture sets apart the Church as this unique institution. It is the only institution, the only community that the New Testament identifies with the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, which the Gospels especially speak about. And the Church has been given this unique work to minister the gospel and to gather a people, uh, a baptized community, who look to Christ in faith. And that's very different from the way that Scripture speaks about other communities like the state or the family, uh, which is not just for those who profess Christ and their children. It's for all people. These are not institutions that God has entrusted with the keys of the kingdom of heaven, the way he has the Church. He accomplishes very good, very important things through the state, through the family, through our economic institutions. And I think the challenge for us, I think, as Reformed believers, is not to overreact to secularism or overreact to denigration of ordinary work in such a way that we lose the distinction between what we are accomplishing as we participate in the ministry and life of the Church, as opposed to what the state and other institutions do that God uses to preserve this world until the day that Christ comes again. You're listening to Office Hours. I'm Scott Clark. We're talking with David Vendruden about his latest book from Crossways, discussing the question of God's sovereignty over all things and how he administers that sovereignty in two distinct kingdoms. You can get that book through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. When we come back after this break, I've got a question for you, David, and that is, The listener may be saying, well, this is interesting. I'm sort of attracted to this way of thinking, but it's not something with which I'm familiar. Is this a new idea? And I want you to approach that when we come back after this. In the 17th century, John Bunyan gave us the character Mr. Valiant for Truth. In the 20th century, God gave us another Mr. Valiant for Truth, J. Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary. The spirit of Machen lives on at Westminster Seminary, California, where for 30 years we've been fulfilling his vision of preparing men for ministry and teaching them to be expert in the Bible. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, his gospel, and his church. Scott, the answer to your question is that the two kingdoms idea is not a new one. 
It was an idea that became very popular at the time of the Reformation. Both uh, Luther and Calvin taught the idea of the two kingdoms, and it became a useful and common idea in both Lutheran and Reformed theology uh, in following centuries. Even though for a variety of historical reasons for the last century or so it has dropped off the radar screen in Reformed Christianity, but even before the Reformation, even if the terminology was not in use, uh, Christians were struggling with these sorts of issues and at times coming to very similar conclusions. Augustine and his two cities idea is is a good example. Uh, Augustine's two cities is not exactly the same as what the Reformers uh, always meant by the two kingdoms, but Augustine was wrestling with the same kinds of matters and coming to some very similar conclusions. My uh, book of about nine months ago, uh, Natural Law and the Two Kingdoms, uh, discusses some of the historical background to this idea. Is your formulation of the two kingdoms identical to the formulation that one finds in the 16th and 17th centuries? Well, it's not identical in every respect. At a foundational level, this idea of God ruling two kingdoms, of the Son of God having these two mediatorships by which he rules all things, is the same kind of idea that I'm using. But I would suggest that there are several ways in which I have modified, perhaps updated, the idea for a contemporary Reformed audience. Uh, One is a recognition that we're no longer living in Christendom. What does that mean? Sure, yeah. I mean, at the time of the Reformation in the 16th and 17th century, despite the divisions in Europe that the Reformation had caused, there is still this widespread idea that Europe is a Christian society. Uh, It was assumed that Basically, all people are members of the church, I mean, some Christian church, uh, that rulers are Christians and that there is this, this very tight link between the church and the state. Well, that obviously is no longer the case in Western society. And I think that there are some good theological reasons why the old Christendom concept was not something that we should be seeking to recapture. And so I am articulating a Two Kingdoms doctrine that is not embracing this Christendom idea. I mean, we're living in a very, very different society, and I try to address issues in a way that reflects that. Two other things that come to mind that I think are a bit different about the way that I'm articulating this idea. One is that I put a lot of emphasis upon the biblical covenants. Covenant theology, as you know, has always been a very important, vital part of Reformed theology. And I think that we have not always in the past incorporated our covenant theology with our two kingdoms theology as well as we might. And so one of the things that my book tries to do is to articulate the two kingdoms idea in light of the biblical covenants. And a third, I would say, uh, difference or at least maybe enriching of the earlier two kingdoms uh, idea is that if you look at Calvin and you look at the Reformed theologians in subsequent generations— the two kingdoms tended to mean church and state. Now, I think that's a very important aspect of the two kingdoms, but I am treating the common kingdom or the civil kingdom as much more than the state, as that range of political, economic, scientific, artistic sorts of cultural activities and institutions that God has established as creator and preserves, but which must be distinguished from the work of the church. And so, in some ways, I would, I would say that someone like Abraham Kuyper was very helpful in talking about these multiple spheres. It is not just church and state, but it is church and state and family and the workplace and the academy. And I think all of that is important to be taking into account as we're 
rustling through the two kingdoms idea. There are at least a few people who look at the contemporary social situation and they think, well, we've tried life for a few hundred years without Christendom. Maybe Christendom wasn't such a bad idea. Maybe we should go back to it. And so they are vigorously advocating, at least at a theoretical level, that we need to go back to it. So what was wrong with it? Why wouldn't you want to go back to the original uh, situation in which the two kingdoms idea was articulated by Reformed writers? Sure. I mean, that's, uh, that's really a very big question that listeners should probably read the book to really get the full answer. And of course, I hope that they'll buy the book and read it. And they can get it through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California. I thought you might say that. WSCAL.edu slash bookstore. Tell us the title again. Living in God's Two Kingdoms, A Biblical Vision for Christianity and Culture. And it's under your name, David Van Drunen. Yeah, well, to get to your question, why not Christendom? Why not, at least theoretically, try to get back there? One of my chief arguments of my book is to point readers to the covenant with Noah, at the end of Genesis 8, and then continues through Genesis 9.17. In this covenant, God promises to sustain the world after the destruction of the flood. He institutes the idea of civil justice. There's going to be justice. He commands human beings to be fruitful and multiply. God preserves this world. And the interesting thing that that text says is that this is for all people, for all Noah's descendants. In fact, it's for all living creatures. It's for all creation. That when we're talking about the task of being fruitful and multiplying, uh, the task of doing justice, he who sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, this is not a distinctive task for the believer. This is not just for those who confessed the name of the true God. It's not just for the church. Uh, It's not just for Christians. This is a joint activity of believers and unbelievers. Now, that's going to make it more difficult— That uh, means that there is going to be all sorts of challenges as we try to negotiate our way with those who disagree with us at a basic fundamental level about the most important things of life. But it seems to me that there's certainly a lot of different aspects that we could talk about to this whole Christendom question. But at a very basic level, God has ordained civil society to be for people whatever their religious profession. Uh, You can see that, too, in the... uh, New Testament, if you take Romans 13, uh, where Paul talks about God instituting civil magistrates when he commands Christians to be submissive to them. Well, who's he talking about there? I mean, he's not talking about some Christian government. He's talking about a very pagan and often very brutal Roman government. God has revealed to us in the New Testament that we are pilgrims and aliens and exiles in this world. I mean, he's adopting the language that is used of the Israelites in Babylon— He's adopting the language used multiple times in Genesis to describe Abraham and the patriarchs, people who were living in a land that was not ultimately their own. They were to live there. They were to seek the peace of the cities in which they lived. They were to love their neighbor, uh, to serve their neighbor, to get along with their neighbors as far uh, as they could. But they weren't to be trying to take over. They weren't trying to, to establish a believing Christian civil society as a whole. Uh, We have a holistic kingdom. Uh, We have a kingdom that encompasses all of life. Uh, That is the eternal heavenly kingdom that uh, is going to be fully revealed on the last day. And I think the attempt to try to establish that heavenly eschatological kingdom in every area of life now is a task that Scripture doesn't give us, and I think runs into all sorts of biblical problems. So the question is, which biblical paradigm 
is the Christian to use as he thinks about how he lives in this world? It's common for Christians to think of themselves as living in Canaan in their civil life and then to try to reconstitute in some way or other the Mosaic theocracy. But you're saying that's the wrong paradigm. The paradigms that we want to use for the place in which we live now in redemptive history are Noah and and the exile. That's right. Noah, uh, sojourning Abraham, and the Babylonian exile. It's not to say, of course, that our situation is identical to them. I mean, I, I think one very important difference is that the New Testament church that Christ has established is a energetically missionary body. Uh, we believe that we should preach the gospel to all people, whatever language they speak, whatever country they live in. We don't see that in the days of Abraham or during the Babylonian exile. So, I mean, there are some really important differences, and we, of course, enjoy the fruit of Christ's redemptive work and the power of the Spirit in a way that the Old Testament saints uh, did not. But your fundamental point that that you're making, I I think, is absolutely critical for understanding the whole Christianity and culture kind of question. When the New Testament calls us sojourners or exiles, it is precisely pointing us to these non-theocratic times. God never gave the New Testament church a land, a holy land, whether in Canaan or in Western Europe or in North America— Christians, in a sense, have no home on this world. In another sense, they can be at home in any place in this world, uh, because wherever we are, our ultimate and most important citizenship is our citizenship in heaven, and we are called to live as faithful, loving pilgrims in whatever place God happens to put us in this world. And there is an outpost, isn't there, in this world, a physical, visible manifestation of the eternal heavenly kingdom. Where is that, David? I think you may be thinking of the church, and if you are, I am right with you. Yeah, and I think that's uh, an extremely important addendum to what I just said. It's not as if this eschatological heavenly kingdom is totally future, is totally outside of this world, uh, because... Christ has established his church, and you remember, say, in Matthew 16 and 18, which are the only places in the four Gospels in which the word church, uh, ecclesia, is used. And there Christ says uh, he will give the keys of the kingdom of heaven to the church. And in all sorts of ways through the rest of the New Testament, the church is associated with the kingdom. Do you want to hear the message of the kingdom? Do you want to see the life of the heavenly kingdom lived here and now? Do you want a haven and a refuge from the storms of this present world? The New Testament points us to the church. And as you're saying, and I think you are saying this very deliberately, uh, it is a physical, it is a visible manifestation of that kingdom. Uh, It's not just some sort of ethereal, spiritual sort of of thing. Uh, These are real people uh, who really get together who hear words preached to them, who lift up their voice in song, who eat bread and wine, who share one another's burdens, uh, who give material gifts to one another, who uphold one another in their trials and sufferings. And uh, here it is that you see that heavenly kingdom coming to fruition here and now. If you want to see the kingdom here on, on this earth, find a faithful church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and there you will get this wonderful glimpse of what that eternal kingdom is. One of the 
criticisms that I've heard of the two kingdoms analysis of our life in this world is that it's really just a dodge, a way of avoiding conflict with an increasingly hostile culture. How do you answer that? Well, one of the ways in which I uh, approach my task in my book uh, is to emphasize uh, two themes which I believe are both crucial. If you only have one or the other as you're thinking about your life out in this world, I think you're going to get things pretty seriously wrong. The two ideas are commonality and antithesis. And it seems to me that they're, they're both evident biblical facts that we need to deal with. On the one hand, there's commonality, and we've talked a little bit about that already. We see this established, for example, in the covenant with Noah. God has not simply given the family or the civil government or the marketplace to believers, but this is for something that we are called to live in and work in alongside of others. And we know that by God's common grace, you know, we, we have that word, that commonality idea right in that, that idea of, of common grace, that God does allow us to accomplish many important and worthwhile things. And unbelievers do many things that are noteworthy, that what we would recognize as good in a civil sense. But even as we are affirming that commonality, uh, here's where I would also want to bring in this concept of the antithesis. And this, I think, answers that kind of objection that is raised. We're not trying to—at least I'm not trying to dodge the idea that there's conflict, that there is the hostility towards the Christian faith, that even those unbelievers that are, in a sense, most friendly to us, the ones that we can get along with best, who are law-abiding and are good neighbors, all believers and unbelievers have a stand in antithesis with one another at a basic fundamental level. We have different ideas about who God is, about who we are in relation to Him, what our responsibilities are before Him. And that antithesis is going to play itself out in various ways in this world. Sometimes it will be more evident than others. Christians living under Nazi Germany or communist Soviet Union, we're probably going to feel that antithesis more than most Christians have felt it during the uh, American history. But that antithesis is always there. And so believers do have this, uh, do have this sort of dual task. And I'm not going to say that it's easy, but I would also say that anyone who promises a sort of an easy solution to it is probably— not offering the most helpful paradigm. Christians must always be vigilant and watchful for all the ways in which this world seeks to distort the truth and marginalize the Christian faith. At the same time, we need to try to live in peace with all people as far as it lies with us. And it's in the dual affirmation and pursuit of those things that I think we're on solid biblical ground for trying to understand our responsibilities in this world. One last question. How will this help local congregations, for Christians to understand that God is sovereign over all things, but he administers his sovereignty in two distinct but related spheres or kingdoms? Well, I think there are all sorts of potential benefits. One is, I think, a greater appreciation for the unique ministry of the Church, that God has given the Church this task of ministering the Word of God. It hasn't given it the task of trying to be public policy analyst of being a stimulator of economic growth, of being the solver of world poverty. The Church is given the task of ministering the Word of God, and that should be a liberating thing for pastors. And the pastor gets up on Sunday morning, Sunday evening to preach. He doesn't have to be an expert on everything. He doesn't have to be an expert on all the latest political developments and the latest health care bill and whatever else. He is entrusted with 
unfolding the scriptures before the people. Also, I would say that for the ordinary believer, for the believer who is perhaps struggling with his work and thinking, this is kind of worthless, there's no point in me having this sort of job, I'm, I'm just doing it in order to survive, this can be a way to encourage believers to see the God-honorableness of their various vocations, as they understand that God has made all these things, and God continues to preserve these things, and that we can glorify Him in these. But at the same time, I think it can help believers to understand that they might come to different opinions about how to deal with a particular political controversy. They might have different opinions about how to run a business different ideas about science or art. And in a sense, that's okay, because Christians are not unified over the particular details of public policy. Christians unite around their profession of faith in Christ and their common worship. And I would hope that this can help promote peace within local congregations. Uh, We don't have to split over perhaps some different views about whether we should homeschool or send our kids to Christian schools. We don't have to split over whether you need to be an activist for a particular political party or not. Those are all great things to be thinking about, all important things for Christians to be making wise decisions about. But I think the Two Kingdoms idea helps us to understand that what really unites us as believers is the gospel, is the worship of Christ church, and that uh, we need to be charitable and supportive of one another as we wrestle with these other kinds of matters. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright 2010, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.